This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. On today's show, Sandra Newman. On her new novel, Julia. Sandra Newman is the author of The Only Good Thing Anyone Has Ever Done, which was shortlisted for the Guardian First Book Award, and The Country of Ice Cream Star, which was longlisted for the Women's Prize. She's also the author of Cake, The Heavens and The Men, as well as the memoir Changeling, and how not to write a novel. And today we're here to talk about Sandra's latest novel, which is Julia. And Sandra, first of all, welcome to Little Atoms. Oh, thank you. Hi. Normally, my first question would be, how would you describe this novel? But this novel has basically one of the shortest elevator pitches ever, which is 1984, but from Julia's perspective. So I'm going to ask you instead, how did this book come about? Why now, I guess, is the key point. How can you write this novel now, 75 years after 1984 was published? Okay, so yeah, it's actually, it's kind of a complicated answer. So so I was actually approached by the Orwell estate to write this book. So it was their decision that now is the moment. And that is partly because 1984 was coming out of copyright, and they were about to lose control of the of the intellectual property. And what that meant, like over the years, that this idea is the idea of 1984 from Jill's perspective has been around for at least as long as, you know, the popularity of feminist retellings has been around. And it's probably been around since the first woman read 1984. (laughs) So the Orwell Estate has been approached many, many times over the years by authors who were interested in writing this book, and they have always said no. And I think, you know, it's it's not that they would never have said yes, but for whatever reason, none of the people who approached them struck them as trustworthy enough. And they have always been very concerned with preserving Orwell's legacy and not letting anyone cheapen his work insofar as they're able, you know, they're not always able clearly to control that. And they're very protective of his political message. So basically they saw, you know, that control evaporating once and for all, and it was going to happen. And they thought, well, well, we'll get in front of this and we'll try to get somebody to write a version of this book that we feel comfortable with, you know, that we can be proud of instead of embarrassed by. And I'm I'm flattered to say that I was their second choice. So <laughs> the first person did not agree to do it, didn't want to do it. And I did very much want to do it. Like from the first moment I, I wanted to do it and I thought and my only concern was whether it would be possible to do it 
in a way that would actually make a good novel, you know, that wouldn't be just an empty exercise. What I did was I went away and started rereading 1984 before I said, I definitely want to do this. And I think from the first chapter, I had already started writing my book. It was so obvious to me, A, that there was a book there, that there was a character there, that there was a whole person there who was just barely kind of peeping through the surface of the text of 1984. There was just so many things that I wanted to write, to add to the world that are kind of either implicit in 1984 or they're mentioned in 1984, but never fleshed out, or we never, we just never learn about them. Like what's happening in the rest of England and the rest of the world. We never really learn about that. And it just became an incredibly exciting project to me. And I was just so grateful when they, they did like my ideas about it and we went forward with it. And so, I mean, as you said, obviously the Orwell estate don't want the legacy of 1984 cheapening but we can all think of lots of you know examples of whether it's you know rewritings or sequels or reimaginings of of classic novels that happen obviously as more and more books come out of copyright that happens more and indeed there is such a thing as fan fiction that exists and as i said there's lots of these things not many of them are like the white sargasso oc you know there's a lot of bad versions of these sort of things out there so like when you were thinking about doing this and approaching it what sort of what sort of pitfalls are there when you're approaching a project like this ah the pitfalls um i think it's actually there's so many pitfalls it almost makes it easier for you because you're just finding your way among the the pitfalls, you know, as long as you're not falling into a pit, then you're on the right track. I found, I know that sounds, that sounds like it would be a miserable experience, but it was actually a lot of fun. You know, you could, so, so some of the pitfalls first, especially with, I decided pretty early on, like I thought about having it be the events after the events of 1984 or something else in that world. But I, I decided pretty early on, no, the, the only way to do this is to have it be literally the events of 1984 from Julia's point of view. And so you immediately have the problem that we already know what happens in 1984. So it can't be the same book, or it's just not going to be interesting. And it's not just a problem with the plot. It's also a problem with the tone. It can't, it can't really be striking the same note as 1984, but it can't be that different either. I was always like stuck between, you know, too much the same or too different. And, and that gave you like this sort of territory where the book could live. And if you strayed too far in either direction, it either began to get boring or it began to just sort of sort of ring false. There was like a dissonance there between the two books. So that is a major pitfall. And the the other pitfall is is actually about the philosophy of the book because, you know, as I was saying, like the Orwell estate doesn't want people to to cheapen Orwell. They also don't want people to distort his message. But you can't deliver the exact same message. I mean, people have 1984 on their minds when they're reading my book. And if it's delivering the exact same message, then it's it's not interesting. You know, it, it feels it feels almost tautological. It's it just feels wrong somehow conceptually. So you have to deliver a message that is somehow different, but also one which Orwell could have could have said, you know, in a slightly different world. Obviously, this is it is a different book. It's a different story to 1984. But, you know, almost everybody listening to this show will have read 1984 and knows what happens. But this is a different story. And so with the caveat that we're obviously not going to give away many ways in which it's different. You talk about the sort of tone of 1984 and Orwell is relentless in that this is a 
it's a totalitarian world and whatever Winston Smith does, however he decides to rebel, he's just a you know a small cog and there's really nothing to be done about it. He's doomed. And there's a there's a conversation between Julia and Winston in this novel, roughly about when they start having their trysts, where she basically says, you know, she she wants to live, she wants to have a life despite the you know, the crushing system. And he sees them as basically once you start deciding in your mind that you want to rebel, you're already dead. You can you can forget about it. So tell us just some more about, I guess, Julia's feelings about it. Well, Julia has, for one thing, Julia has never known any other life. So she's she's sort of lived within the system and does not have the concept of a system that would be different. And so she doesn't have the same feeling of of chronic continuous injustice and wrongness that Winston has and which is described in 1984. She actually just just kind of takes this world for granted. Um, And she's also just a different sort of person. She's much more earthy, more down to earth and kind of, um, for lack of a better word, fun loving. And so she's she spent her whole life finding the ways to have a good time, actually, in Oceania, finding ways to to kind of bend the rules and get away with the things that she she wants to do. She is able to get like luxury goods on the black market. She's had a lot of lovers before. And this is all in 1984. I didn't I didn't invent any of that at all. And so inevitably, like her voice, I mean, for one thing, like part of being part of being accepting and taking a system for granted is that you can see it with a bit of humor. Like for her, life isn't a constant tragedy. It's more of a constant dark comedy. And so that's part of the difference between the two books. Certainly 1984 has its moments of dark comedy, but it's so much on the dark side that I don't know if there are very many people who have like laugh out loud moments during 1984. And I hope that they will have that with my book. And the other thing about it is that Julia does, for the most part, manage to be happy and to and to tell herself she will ultimately like get away with things, that she will have a good life. And she doesn't think it's important for her to worry about the politics. You know, she just she just thinks it's all bullshit and, the you know, the inner party are swine. And that's that's just part of her world. And she doesn't really trouble herself too much about it until the end of the book when she, re, you know, she actually is made to understand that it's not possible to ignore politics in this world, that you actually do have to you do have to contend with what the government means and what it's doing to you because you, there is no way to be safe under totalitarianism. You told us something about who Julia is, who your version of Julia is, but tell us about who she is when we first meet her. Where do we find her when we at the beginning of the novel? Uh, well, she's, um, as she is in 1984, she's working at the fiction department. And as she tells Winston in 1984, where she lives is at a women's hostel, so where she lives in a dormitory with 30 other women. And so she's kind of actually like living life on a different difficulty level from Winston. So she not only has to has to live in this hostile situation, which is never anyone's favorite, but she also has to live in it in a situation where most of those other 30 women are potentially informers. So anything that she does could be reported to the authorities. It's not just the telescreen she has to worry about. She has to worry about pissing off the people she lives with because any of them could make up a story about her, turn her over to the authorities and get her killed. That's kind of a complex social situation in which people have to form friendships and alliances. They have to trust each other, but they also have to all turn on the person who has become suspect. 
you know, if you you can't fall into guilt by association in a world where there are 30 other people there who are not going to go along with you, if you see what I mean. So it's a situation where she has to be much more complicit, I guess, with the evils of the regime, even just by virtue of that living situation than Winston ever does. But the converse of that as well is that there are real bonds that are developing between some of the women that are obviously contingent on the situation, but we do see that with her living in this sort of communal way as well. The relationships between those women are are sort of important parts of the novel. It's interesting. One of the first things that happens, she does have friends among the other girls and they help each other out. They share their rations. They pick up their rations for each other, all of that kind of thing. But one of the first things that happens is that there is another girl who it looks like it looks like she's going to get arrested that night. And Julia fails in like her most basic duty, which is to shun such people and treat them as criminals. And all of her, all of the other girls who have been her friends a minute before will no longer have anything to do with her. So like she, the shunning shifts to her. And then as it happens, I'm not going to, I'm not going to tell any more of the plot, but, but this is the sort of thing. But then later on, we see that Julia is again friends with these people. It's basically a situation where you can truly have warm feelings for someone but you might not be able to express them. You might have to betray that person and they would have to understand that you were betraying them out of the desire to survive and it wasn't personal. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST.
You're listening to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Sandra Newman, and we're talking about her new novel, Julia. And Sandra, one of the other things that's obviously very different about this novel, seeing it from Julia's perspective, is we get to see quite a bit about her background, which is also very different to Winston's. So tell us something about who her parents were and the group of people of Maidstone that are known as Boots. Okay, so she she comes from a family where her parents were both revolutionaries early on in the time when, you know, and they were members of the party before Big Brother came to power um, and before the revolution. And so we see them sort of as, you know, her mother in particular is like an Oxford radical and the father is more working class. So just by marrying the father, the mother is already kind of rebelling against her origins. And the two of them are members of the party until the father becomes too outspoken and he is eventually hanged. And this is the beginning of like Julia grows up in this sort of internal exile and among a, a community of political exiles. And as the, the party's reign becomes more and more despotic, we see what happens to them and how from like living in this kind of internal exile where they they just imagine that they're going to be rehabilitated any minute and you know sit around talking about what the party should be doing all day and you know having parties in each other's houses it all gets darker and darker and darker and so that's kind of Julia's background and that really goes to an extremely a scary place and of course, by seeing that, by envisioning not just her background, but, you know, another place, a Maidstone and something of the origins of the revolution, this is all more than we got in 1984, because this is a story that's told from Julia's perspective. And there's, a, again, one of the early twists, there's a line where she looks at Winston and sees that he can't even imagine anything other than life in London. But, you know, through Julia, we are able to see more. So tell us something about just you alluded to this again in the in the first half, but just about envisaging more of England under this regime. Yeah, I think in 1984, they do go to the countryside and it's called the golden country. And it's sort of the world of it's the natural world that the party has denied to people. It's the world where you can find a place to make love au naturel. And it's sort of idyllic. And in Julia's world, it's not that simple because she actually lived in, you know, a small village outside of the center and saw what happened there. And we get to see like other kinds of people. We see farmers. We see like what the, the kind of party officials are like in these provincial places. We see the people serving the military, all of that kind of thing. And I think like a lot of the the pleasure of the writing the book for me was in imagining all of those characters, like all the parts of the society that Orwell didn't really focus on. You know, he mentioned them, but he didn't get a chance to bring them to life, I guess. And I think like one of the things that was a real benefit for me was that 1984 had already been written. So I, I kind of had that backbone. You already know a lot of the world. And that gave me the freedom to explore the parts of it that weren't so much. I guess what I'm saying is that that Orwell, Orwell wrote his book and he was guided very much by the necessity of making this political statement of delivering his warning about totalitarianism. And with my book, that gave me a little more freedom because people already understand 1984 and I can just actually more lightly allude to the warning and reinstate it in people's minds. And that gives me more freedom to do other things that are more fanciful and more fun and which just like 
travel to to other parts of this world rather than having to fix the the principles of things like double think in the reader's mind. Um, because we're seeing the the novel through Julia's perspective, we see aspects of her life that are again alluded to in 1984 by Orwell, but not you know obviously not gone into any great detail. So tell us something about her membership of the Junior Anti Sex League and what that is. This is again, this is something that in Orwell he mentions, but he doesn't really tell us what happens there. So she's always a member of the Junior Anti Sex League, and she wears this red sash around. Her waist that indicates that she is a member of the Junior Anti-Sex League, where all of the members are chased and they do not have sex. And this is part of like being a good party member is that you do not have sex, you don't have personal relationships, really your only allegiance and your only affection is for the party. And so I do like I do take the reader to the anti-sex league meetings, and she has friends there as well. And I think one of the things that was immediately obvious to me when I was thinking about writing this book, which Really, like Orwell doesn't give you the opportunity to think about it. But I thought in if this was happening in the real world and these were real people, if you're going to have like an anti, anti-sex league where people are devoted to chastity and vowing never to marry, what's immediately going to happen is that it's going to be full of gay people and it will be a place where gay people come to meet. Um, and that is part of the, you know, part of the subculture of the anti-sex league. Yeah, these are the, um, they're described as Reggie's in the book. Tell us something a bit more about the origin of this name. Oh, yeah. Well, Reggie, um, it's based on a, a woman who's a historical figure who's one of the higher ups in the party, who is eventually denounced for having a relationship with another woman. And even though when she goes to court, the judge refuses to condemn her because, <laughs> as he says, you know, there, are, I, f- I forget what the exact phrase is, is in my own book, but basically he refuses to believe in the existence of lesbians and feels that it's anatomically impossible for them to have sex. So he, he exonerates her, but because of the nature of the party, that's not the end of it, because once somebody is denounced, there's no escape for them and she's killed anyway. But she's remembered and she survives in the, the sort of the sobriquet Reggie, which is a tribute in a sense to her by the LGBT people who still survive. Obviously, Julia is, you know, she's going through the motions of being a member of the Junior Anti-Sex League, but has a uh, rather robust and healthy sex life herself. And it does make one wonder how one's sexuality would develop under a totalitarian system. Yeah, well, I think that... There are things that Orwell didn't really, he didn't really consider properly because he was, and this is not a criticism of him. It's because he was focused on his task and he had to, had to focus on some things at the expense of others. But if you think about it, it's fairly obvious that when you have a power structure like that, then sexuality is, is still going to persist. And some of the things that happen are not just not that simple. You know, the people who are higher up in the party are going to use their power to force themselves on people who are lower down, for instance. So that's one of the things that happens in my book, which Orwell doesn't really consider as a possibility. But also people will find ways to sneak off and have sex with each other. And that then creates a kind of a perverse power relationship between the people who have who've done that because either of them can denounce the other. And you need to form sort of a kind of a culture of looking the other way about such things and ways of getting it done. And I think that this is pretty much, I don't know if there is any society that has attempted to do what Orwell envisages 
1984, actually, to suppress sex completely. But there are plenty of societies that have tried to suppress other things, like, for instance, the Soviets trying to suppress commerce. And all that happens is that it develops in this kind of strange, warped way and kind of becomes symbiotic with the thing that's trying to suppress it. So within the Soviet Union, actually, the share of commerce that was private was not that different to what we <laughs> we had in the West. It's just that a lot of it was illegal and there were a lot of risks and bribes and so on and so forth and corruption that allowed that to take place. And, and it developed in this kind of strange and almost comical way. And the other thing that's obviously related to the suppression of sexuality in the world is what's called the Artsem programme. What is that? Yeah, again, this is something that Orwell mentions and doesn't really go into. But the, the party is introducing artificial insemination as an alternative to natural birth because they don't want people to have private relationships. And they would really prefer that people never never marry and, and never have sex. So their solution is is artificial insemination. And it occurred to me, like again, as with the, the Reggies and the anti-sex league, that what would immediately happen is that the people who are having illicit you know, illegal sex, sex outside of marriage, are going to use this as a way to cover up for an unwanted pregnancy. Because I mean, this is, and this is really something that's odd in 1984, because Winston and Julia have sex for weeks at a time, very regularly, and they never worry about pregnancy, which would be a death sentence for Julia, at least, and probably for Winston as well, if it were to happen. And she's also had many, many affairs before. And there's no mention of pregnancy as a danger, even though this is a world where birth control just wouldn't exist. You know, there's no possibility that the party would tolerate sex that wasn't for the purposes of creating new party members. So I thought, you know, like really, like I was always looking in at 1984 and trying to weave it together into a world that was real, which I think Orwell was less concerned with, actually. He was, he was creating a world that was an allegory or much closer to an allegory. And with my book, like one of the ways that it's really different is that I tried to make it more kind of realistic in the way that most novels are. So we talked about how Julia's sexuality might develop under this regime. When one reads 1984, especially nowadays, one is struck by Winston's misogyny, which again, now we could probably talk about as something that develops by living under that regime. When 1984 was written, maybe it was just, um, one can't help think having uh, just recently covered um, Anna Funder's wifedom on the show, that a lot of it came from um, Orwell himself. However, moving on swiftly from that, when they have their first tryst again, and, and I, don't want to, I don't want to talk about Julia's first, first ideas about Winston when she sees him, because that stuff's really fun in the book, and I, and I don't, don't want to spoil that. But when she asks him what he thought of her, he repeats something that he sort of paraphrases, something that happens in um, 1984, where he basically says that, you know, oh, I wanted to rape you and then sort of beat you to death with a rock yes. or something, which is um, <laughs> incredibly shocking. Uh, yeah. So tell us something about that, how you've sort of tackled Winston's attitude to women in the novel. I think that, that moment in 1984 is really interesting because he says that and she just laughs, you know, as if she's delighted. And it's, I think that's really kind of hard to read as a woman, because it really seems as if Orwell is endorsing that form of, um, well, misogyny, but also this idea of sexuality is somehow involving women accepting the idea of men wanting to rape and murder them. But I thought it's also not 
improbable as a scene. You can you can kind of imagine a, a woman doing that, even if it's not a very likable thing for a woman to do. Women accept all kinds of weird and frightening behavior from men, especially when they're trying to sleep with them. So I was kind of dealing with that, like from Julia's point of view. And I think it does actually, a lot of the things that she does work better if you assume that she's not in love with him and she's she is attracted to him but she's kind of managing him all the time and doesn't expect that much from him that she's treating him as a woman treats a man who she doesn't take that seriously and as far as oral's misogyny is concerned i think that it's funny like i i actually i've always been a, a great great admirer of orwell's writing so to some degree i'm really biased but i do find that having having worked so closely with 1984 even with the the parts where you really feel that Orwell that were the misogyny is coming from inside the house as it were the figure of Orwell writing 1984 as he's dying of tuberculosis and essentially working himself to death as he really probably did by refusing to like take breaks from from writing this book because he felt its political importance so strongly and he was so ill and sort of so found it so difficult to have real relationships with people too it's hard not to find even his misogyny kind of poignant and sad like as something that that limited his life and his ability to be happy and you can then see it as something that more broadly and he presents it this way in 1984 too i think like there are other male writers who are misogynists who who managed to do this who managed to write about misogyny just as if they completely saw what was wrong with it while still not being able to see what it's like for women but you do see the the horror of it from the in what it does to men and how it isolates them and makes it impossible for them to be full human beings so to finish this off can i get you to read us a bit Okay, so we've been talking a lot about Julia's sexuality, and this is this is a section where she's considering sleeping with Winston, and she's just reflecting on her past affairs. In Julia's affairs, the chap had always made the first move, or at least met her halfway. Her most recent lover, for instance, had come to sit beside her in a cinema. She hadn't been sure of his intentions, so she let her knee drift to touch his, and left it there a moment too long. Taking it away, she gave him a sidelong glance. Sure enough, he was looking at her. A minute later, he let his knee drift to hers, and again it lasted just a fraction too long. This was repeated until their knees rested together, and they yearned in the wonderful dark. Amid the bustle of the audience leaving, she'd whispered a time and place to him. From there, the affair created itself. Every step was preordained and part of the routine of such affairs, like a story stamped out by a fiction machine. The man even reproduced some of the muttered endearments of her previous lovers. Of course, that was no great wonder. Certain words and phrases had become watchwords that showed one was of the fucking class. The words dear and darling were staples. There was also a transgressiveness at trysts that seemed part and parcel of sexual play. A casual profanity was almost expected. Many people liked to curse the inner party and call them swine and bastards. Julia had had one fellow who'd got aroused from saying, Emmanuel Goldstein isn't all wrong. Always those same five words. Then he leapt upon her in urgent passion. Another liked to fart after sex, long and loud, 
with a smirk of joyful impudence and say, that to the inner party. What Julia loved was nudity, especially out of doors. She loved to fuck in the grass, the whole sky seeing her, then to sprawl with legs akimbo, feeling the breeze on her cunt and scratching at her armpit like a sleepy monkey. She liked rough dirt beneath her ass while she was fucked. She would dig her bare toes into the earth and the man atop her would use the coarsest language, then call her dear or mother, just as he pleased. Afterward, they shared their black market finds and said the worst things they could think of, laughing until they cried, all naked. She felt exceptional then, as daring as a pilot, flying in the teeth of a storm. She was fucking, though it killed her. So it was only natural to moan, I love you, in the ear of a man she would never see again. She loved him because she was forbidden to do it. She loved him to be fearless. It couldn't have been more obvious that Winston Smith was not of this profane, irresponsible company and could never be. So I've been talking to Sandra Newman. We've been talking about her new novel, Julia, which is out now from Granta. Sandra, thank you so much for taking the time to share it. Oh, yeah, thank you. This episode of Little Atoms was produced, presented and edited by me, Neil Denny. Little Atoms is hosted by Acast and published by 89up. The show is broadcast on Mondays and Saturdays on Resonance 104.4 FM. Thanks for listening. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.